moment. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie Two Porno Radio on AM nine fifty. Lovely AM nine fifty. Talking to you from the bunker. And I have a special guest today. It happens to be Jack, my dog. Jack, say hi. No, he's not going to say hi. Although he might. I brought Jack today just for those of you who don't know about Jack, he is a 90-pound English cream golden retriever. That means he is all white. He looks like a polar bear. And I brought him along today because I just didn't want to leave him at home. And so I'm doing that. And right now, as I'm speaking to you, I'm feeding him treats to keep him occupied. So, and you may hear some disruption, but hey, there we go. All right. Happy, warm Saturday to you. You know, has the thaw begun? I don't know. Um, But we're seeing earlier sunrises and later sunsets. It's just quite wonderful out here in Minnesota, the, also known as the freezer. Have, we've got a great show for you today. Um, you know, and remember, our focus is idealism and idealists, people working to change the world for the better. Um, in honor of Black History Month, the big interview is an encore of my interview with Rachel Pilgrim, whose story about searching for five black women who founded a black church in New York uh, upper New York or lower New York State outside the New York City in the late 1800s. Her, her story about that became the subject of a New York Times feature piece. And I had her on the show. Um, uh, as I said, uh, well, I had her on the show a couple years ago, and uh, we're going to do that again. It's a great interview. In the C Block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. But let us begin with our featured idealist, someone – uh, and someone and what you might find surprising about what he consider someone who is special and you might find surprising about what he considers the most important professional aspect of his life. Uh, you might not expect him to be an idealist whatsoever. And I'm talking of none other than LeBron James, who this week broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record of 38,387 points and became the greatest, highest-scoring basketball player in NBA history. Yeah, that LeBron James. That's who I'm talking about. And you might expect that to be, that, you know, you know breaking those records to be the, you know, the, the highest achievement of LeBron's life. But that actually isn't. What LeBron considers to be the pinnacle of his life is something entirely different. It's an education program, an elementary to middle school named I Promise, that's um, in LeBron James' hometown of Akron, Ohio. I originally shared about LeBron's I Promise program back in August of 2018. Oh, my God. I mean, four and a half years ago, this show has been around forever. I think that that was show 33, episode 33. But given... LeBron's ascension into the NBA. Hold on a second. Jack's doing something. Jack, stop. Given LeBron's ascension into NBA history this past week, I thought it appropriate to revisit um, I Promise and remind you of what it's about. Many of you may know that LeBron grew up in Akron with a single parent, his mother. His elementary school years were marked by homelessness, uh, which Uh, He and his mother couch surfed quite a bit at various places. It was so bad that LeBron missed 83 days of school in the fourth grade. And as you will hear, all of this impacted LeBron in a second. I'm going to play a clip of him talking about 
uh, the I Promise School. In 2011, with funding from the LeBron James Family Foundation, the I Promise program began in Akron's 30-plus elementary schools. At first, it was about giving students bicycles and helmets, but then it, it morphed and it turned into working with specifically 303rd graders who otherwise seemed on track to fail. And the, 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 game, the aim of the program was to help them with basic reading and, te- and test scores to, so that they would not fail. Then in 2018, seven years after I Promise began, in 2018, the program became housed in what was Akron School District's former administration building. At that point, the program expanded. Hold on a second. I've just got to get Jack. Jack, come here. At that point, <laughs> I think you – do you like this? Is that OK that I'm talking to Jack during the show? At that point, the program expanded to the first and fourth uh, uh, elementary grades and then up to eighth grade. It is a STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math-focused school. I love two things about this idealistic endeavor called I Promise. First, I love that the school has two mottos. One of those is we are family. And the second is everything is earned, nothing is given. Fantastic mottos, particularly we are family because students need to feel that adults in their lives care about them. But what I also love is that the I Promise School has what is called family wraparound supports, meaning that the entire family is given resources to succeed, which in turn means that their students will succeed. These supports can be found in the form of helping parents complete their GEDs. But, you know, there's a, there is a house family resource center. So LeBron James Family Foundation is helping with that. The Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services. This, this is all that wraparound. Community legal aid. The Akron Food Bank, um, uh, the Promise to Get GED program, Chase Bank. Chase Bank is involved with this. The University of Akron is involved. Red Oak Counseling and Minority Behavioral Health. So in other words, LeBron and his cohorts his, getting the I Promise off the ground recognizes that this is way more than just simply the students. It's about trying to create a system where where the whole family benefits and frankly, I think that this is the future. This is the way education should be um, going forward across the country. Uh, the data is just coming in for the successes. So far, they calculate that 1,500 Akron students have been touched by I Promise. Out of the 327 third graders enrolled in uh, the program in 2011, 169 graduated from high school in 2021. Many of those who left the program had moved away from the district. So it does not mean that they didn't fail, that they dropped out. One third of the 169 who graduated are college bound. That college enrollment was about 10% higher than the college enrollment for Akron students generally uh, who did not go through, I promise. Now, to get you an idea about the idealism of LeBron James, okay, I'm going to give you a clip. It's a little bit more than three minutes. I want you to hear LeBron um, in 2018, when he spoke about the opening of the I Promise School, um, this is a this is a huge moment. Um, not only um, in my life, not only in my family's life, uh, not only in the foundation's life, but uh, for these kids um, and for the, the the whole city of Akron. And more importantly, um, this is a huge moment for all of us. So, 
we should all give ourselves a round of applause as well. Um, I kind of, when I stand up here, I always kind of start off with the same line um, because it's, it's kind of true. Um, you guys never see me come up here and go in my pocket and grab out note cards or grab out, you know, points of what I should tackle because, uh, to be honest, I kind of never know what I'm going to say until I get up here and I kind of feel the crowd and I kind of feel the emotion behind whatever I'm doing. Um, thank you, too. Um, so I kind of just speak from the heart. I've always found that to be a lot better and, and quite just, you know, just true. So, so here we go. Um, as a kid from uh, Akron, Ohio, myself, um, I remember walking these same streets. I remember walking North Street, West Market. I remember walking behind here on Crosby, going to Harris Elementary, uh, riding my bike throughout the rest of the city. Um, so when people ask me why, why a school, um, that's part of the reason why, because I know exactly what these 240 kids are going through. Um, I know the streets that they walk. I know the trials and tribulations that they go through. I know the ups, the downs. I know everything, um, that they dream about. I know all the nightmares that they have because, uh, because I've been there. Um, I know exactly what they're going through. So, you know, they're the reason why this school um, is here today. Um, and, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Say it again. There you go, testimony. We're going to turn this Monday into a Sunday soon. You're going to say something like that again. <laughs> Reverend James is going to come out soon. I already got the suit on. You know? <laughs> um, but I think for, for, for kids, um, for young kids, um, ages 7, 8, 9, 10, the most important thing that we can give them is structure and a sense of they just want someone to feel like, they, like we care. Kids just want to know if, if we care about them. They, they have the dreams. They have the aspirations. Um, they have everything that they can can actually get to whatever they want to get to in life. They just want to know that someone cared. And that's why we're doing this today. That's why we're going to continue to do things like this because we want these kids over here, these kids over here, and all the kids in this city, and, and hopefully beyond the city lines, beyond the state lines, beyond the country lines, understand that this is something because we care about their future. Um, so... I can't say another word. So that gives you a taste of LeBron James, the idealist. I think it's pretty incredible, frankly. You know, I mean, the LeBron James Foundation has poured millions of dollars into this, I promise. And he's right. What kids want to know is that an adult cares about them. That's what they want to know. And it's quite wonderful when multiple adults care about them. So if you've got a young human in your life, will you let them know that you care about them? And will you urge your educators to think imaginatively? Because this, this thing, I promise, is based on imagination. And it seems to be succeeding. Okay.
All right. That's our featured idealist for today. All right. We're going to do now, when I come back from my break, you're going to get a, a, an encore of my interview of Rachel Pilgrim about her story of searching for five black women who founded a black church outside of New York City and whose identities were lost to time. But she found them back. She found those five women. And then uh, that's in honor of Black History Month, but Rachel Pilgrim is just well worth listening to at any time. And on the other side of that, I'll talk with you about my C-Block, my work as an idealist. All right, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. I hope you're enjoying this. Happy warm Saturday to you. We'll be back in a bit. I want to hold the hand inside you. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. So, Dr. Jill Biden, read up on her. All it takes is a little, you know, Googling on Wikipedia, but you will be tremendously impressed. And oh, my goodness. Oh, all right. Okay. So she is one woman, female idealist. And now we're going to move on to the big interview with another woman, female idealist. I have on the line with me Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study of how of of trying to find the the founders of a black church in Mount Vernon, New York. Rachel, are you there with me? Yes, hi Ellie. Hi Rachel, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am absolutely I'm ecstatic to have you here as my interview guest for the big interview. And let me just kind of give a little bit of the background. So, I discovered found out about you because I'm a advocate a reader of the New York Times and their race related section highlighted a a study that you did, an investigation you did of five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888. But their their names had been lost to history. And you are a uh, a journalism uh, student at Columbia working on your master's. Do I have that right? I just graduated in May. You just graduated? Oh, forget it. Okay. You graduated. Congratulations. Okay. All right. Congratulations. All right. So bring us up to date. Tell us, how did you get involved with this? What was your investigation about and what did you find? Cool. So I had moved to Mount Vernon when I was six years old, but my family had always gone to Grace Baptist Church. And I had, when I, I guess, began reading, (laughs) started reading, I ended up just reading church bulletins. You know, when you're a kid, you're sitting in church, kind of swinging your feet, twiddling your thumbs while everybody's, you know, churching it up. And I would always read the church history on the back of the programs, the bulletins. And it would always say the church was founded by five women of grace um, with tremendous faith. And they never named them. But as I grew up, I found that Grace Baptist Church was a huge pillar in the Mount Vernon community. And we were a part of so many positive movements in a predominantly African-American community in the middle of Westchester, which is usually white, predominantly white. So I, at a certain point, had started to realize that we needed to name them. We needed to name their vision and really just give them back their legacy. So I got to Columbia and we had to do 
these pitch sessions, huge pitch sessions for our master's projects. And they were kind of like, pick something that you're passionate about, but would also serve people around you. And automatically, I said to myself, I've been asking the same question since I was six. Who are these five women <laughs> who founded my church? <laughs> so basically, it was a tumultuous search. For 122 days, I spent my time going through archives um, from newspapers to census reports to people's handwritten meeting notes and journals. Rachel, Rachel, let me uh, interrupt here, okay, just for a second, Mm -hmm. because I want to help paint a little bit further picture. So Grace Baptist Mm -hmm. Church that these five women founded in 1888 um, happens to be what the – is it the, it's the largest church in Westchester County. Do I have yeah, that right? It's the largest. Yeah. Okay. So Westchester County, you know, very affluent, but it also has it also has other um, aspects to it in terms on on the economic scale, and so it's right. got three thousand members, largest church, and and for what two decades you're going to this church reading about the five founders who are never named and you that that stayed with you all of that time and this was the thing that you focused on for your master's thesis right mhm okay i mean it must have really stuck with you all right so you start going through archives to try and figure out who these five women were go ahead so it was really hard i was up against racism, sexism, literacy, so many just, it could have been oral tradition, really. It could have been a story that people just said, and there was no factual basis to it. About the five women. Yeah, about the five women. These five women possibly could not have existed at all. So I found myself in a space where I was better understanding my blackness when it came to historical context. And then on top of that, I was trying to examine a very small black community at the time, back in the late 1800s, that was living in Mount Vernon. So it meant I also had to understand why things changed. And so, um, yeah, it, be- it was really, it was a really intense search. I ended up settling on five candidates who I'm really, really attached to at this point so I'm praying that I am right um, but their names are Emily Waller Matilda Brooks Helen Claiborne Sahar Bennett and Elizabeth Benson well and and I am thrilled that you you have at least to a reasonable degree of journalistic certainty figured out they are the five women but can mm-hmm. we go back and can we paint the picture of what it was like in mm-hmm. Mount Vernon New York in the late 1800s First of all, we have a society, and I, I, and I don't think today that we understand this. We had a society that was still dealing with the vestiges of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And how, how did, so, what did you find out about that? So um, when I spent time with the genealogist at my church, Grace, she and I had to better understand just the time period, about 25, give or take, five years ago in 1865, of course, it was the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Um, which would, by word, I guess, free slaves. But as history would tell it, many people know this by now, too, 
many slaves wouldn't find out they were free until many years later, which is why many black people celebrate Juneteenth. So, um, unfortunately, I was in a space where I had to understand that many of these people could have been illiterate, which is why they did not write down their stories. Right. And so it also would have meant that if they were former slaves, which is a part of the founding story that Grace always told, that these women were possibly formerly enslaved, then the chances of them being illiterate skyrocketed. Right. Then on top of that, moving to a predominantly white city, no matter how progressive it was, there was also going to be a chance that, you know, people didn't write down things for them either. Because at that time, how would you expect anyone to really care what black people were doing, unfortunately? Right. They wouldn't think that it was so, important. Okay, Rachel. Exactly. All right. So, Rachel, I've got to stop you because we've got to take a break. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we come back, I want you to continue to talk about what you found out about that period because mm. what what you did find was that a white church helped, you know, helped these five women, but then there were some mm-hmm. other things that went with it, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's great. Rachel, we've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, who is the author of a study about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888 appeared in the New York Times. Uh, when we come back, we'll do more of uh, what Rachel, we'll learn more about what Rachel found. If you like this show, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We will be back in a minute. Thanks. And we're back. On Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, before we took our break, we had we had been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim uh, from New York, who uh, is part of her, getting her master's degree at the Columbia School of Journalism, wrote a thesis about investigating and finding uh, five black women who had founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York. And Rachel, before we took our break, we started to introduce the idea or the what one of your findings, which was that it was a it was a couple of women and maybe a man at a white church in Mount Vernon mm-hmm. who sort of took these five women under their wing, for lack of a better phrase, and helped them mm-hmm. get get their black church established. Is that do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. You're totally right. All right, but then what did you find out about how that relationship went between the white church and then the newly established black church? So obviously, like there were strings attached, right? They weren't going to help them. They weren't going to help the five women just because they could out of charity, right? There would end up being a lot of um, nuances that came with helping them found it. So. The, there was a white socialite by the name of Martha Wilson who ended up having a piece of land and she was connected to First Baptist Church loosely through friends in her neighborhood. She ended up donating this piece of land to Grace Baptist Church in trust. Okay, so and, she's donating the land to the five women to the black church that's been created in mm-hmm. trust. Okay, go ahead. Which means it's a gift, right? Yep. So... Unfortunately, the white church that was responsible for undertaking this mission did not let these members know 
And they ended up charging them rent on this piece of land so that they can hold their church services. So the black, obviously, the white church is illegal. Okay, the white church is charging the black church rent on land that actually the black church really owned, right? Yeah, it was their land. (laughs) And they ended up charging them rent. Um, Something I don't think I mentioned in my thesis was that there was a lot of instances of this church locking the doors to the small chapel because they would be behind on rent or they somehow didn't have the right to hold a funeral there or somehow they didn't have the right to have like a choir practice, something like that. All of a sudden, these members, particularly the ones that actually helped them, would go and lock the doors to the small chapel. So they would never really have full ownership to their land until um, the third pastor who comes along says, hey, I found the deed. And it says interest. And from what I understand, this means that this land is ours. You can't keep charging us rent. Of course, that didn't go over well. And there was a lot of physical conflict between the deacons and the pastors and many of the ministries between the two churches. So, and, and in fact, the, the, the pastor of the black church who, who said, I've, un- I've discovered that you, you have been cheating us for all these years, white church. In fact, the black pastor got beaten up. I mean, he was assaulted by members of the white church. Do I have that right? And he ended up suing them for personal damages as well as suing them for basically all the rent that they had been paying the church. And he was awarded a small amount of change. I believe the numbers were like for personal damages on his part, on his person, it was 25000 And on behalf of the church, he sued for another ten. He didn't get more than I want to say, like ten thousand in total. Right, but this is the early, yeah. Those. But let's make sure that we, um, our listeners, understand the point. It's a black man. He's a pastor in early the early nineteen mm-hmm. hundreds. Now, early nineteen hundreds in New York, he sues white people for mm-hmm. physically harming him and for the wrongs that they had done to the church, to the black church. And he he went he doesn't win everything he wants, but he wins some money, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that I mean, I think that's an interesting historical footnote. <laughs> yes, it is. There's a lot of li- just little notes that I would love to make in my thesis, hopefully in a book someday <laughs> hey. about all the things that I want to put in that just make this church's founding story so much more interesting. Well, and it already is. Well, and so will you talk about the concept of erasure, please? That's a phrase that's prominent in your, in your dissertation and in the New York mm-hmm. Times story. Tell us what is erasure and why is it so important here? So really the concept of erasure, especially as it pertains to black people and black women, is really just the overshadowing of their legacies and their real promise and the things that we are capable of. And it's just overshadowed by not just 
white people, but just society and moments in history that people would deem even more important. And so we find ourselves often left as a subtext of history, where it's just like we're mentioned as little footnotes, when in reality we have accomplished much more than a footnote can allow. Right. Well, and we have some, of course, we have like Harriet Tubman, some some figures um, in America that that were able to escape erasure and were able to to show up, and and we're right. hear, and we're hearing this in the election that we just had, you know. I mean, Stacey Abrams, right. my God, but but right. Stacey Abrams' work, you know, was empowered by millions of black women, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and even right. now we're hearing, don't forget who those women are, right? Right. And it was a concept that came up in 2016 as well when people realized that black women had really turned out the vote when it came time to vote for Hillary Clinton. And people had framed it as, a, as this idea of us trying to save American democracy. When in reality, we're trying to save ourselves and you're benefiting from us saving ourselves, <laughs> you know, and that's right. really what erasure is, right? Like you, right. you erase not just what the person did, but the intention behind it, you know, and so black women will find themselves really being the big, biggest drivers of a movement and people end up reaping the benefits of what they've sowed. Well, and I want to, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to just go back mm-hmm. to the five women, Emily Waller, mm-hmm. Matilda Brooks, Helen Claiborne, Sahar Bennett, and Elizabeth Benson. You concluded that they were between 25 and 40 years old when they founded this church. Mm-hmm. Can we think of the courage that they had and the persistence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in a... Um, maybe all of them were formerly enslaved people. Um, certainly they had enslaved people in their family. They were in a white society. Mm-hmm. And and five of them persisted, right? Mm-hmm. And they did this. Uh, it, it's amazing. Absolutely. And I'm so happy we can return their names to their legacy. Well, and they, and they were idealists, right? I mean, they were, they were people right. who wanted to change the world. Right. All right, so that brings me then to you, okay? <laughs> I told you that you'd get this question because everyone on, with the big interview on LE 2.0 does get it. Mm-hmm. So, Rachel, what made you an idealist? What made you decide, <laughs> you know, that this would be the story versus you could have done something else <clears throat> for your thesis. And and obviously, the whole experience that you've had now, I mean, you've even said this in the show, you know, makes you want to write a book about the church, the founding, and I have a sense that you want to do other things. So what made you so idealistic? I would say I came out the womb this way. Really growing up into your blackness in America, you're born tired. And you're born fighting teams that you didn't know existed before your first breath. So really, many of the most valuable lessons about life were the ones that I was never taught, but the ones that I witnessed just in the nuances of navigating this, like, patchwork of race, womanhood, and intersectionality. And it was without a word. So I'd say idealism came with the skin color. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my goodness! You know, um, we're on the uh, we're on the other side of the election. You know, mm. we have our first um, uh, vice president who's female, <laughs> and first vice president who is a woman of color, mm. and. And I'm hearing you, and I just want you to know this, okay? You just gave mm-hmm. me an added shot of hope for our country. Mm. You just oh, did. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited for what the next four years would not just, with not just having um, Kamala Harris as VP, but really the amount of women that are about to come out the woodwork that have been doing the work the groundwork and getting their flowers and being alive to smell them. Right. Well, right. And you, and you are one of those women. You are. Thank you. So what's next? So you've got your degree from uh, Columbia uh, masters in journalism. Are you going on and getting your Mm -hmm. PhD? (laughs) You know, I thought about it, but right now I'm just going to, keep working, keep freelancing, and really, I have a few projects that will be coming out in 2021 that I'm excited about. Okay. And hopefully, you know, a PhD will come my way at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So if people want to read up on the on the, the Five Women Project, okay, about the church, mm-hmm. where can they go to read up about it and maybe learn also more about you? Cool. So you can visit the website. That was also tagged at the bottom of the New York Times feature, but it's the five women of com, where you can check out the photos, um, any type of resources that I use during my search. You get a chance to even order my thesis through that website as well. Right, which is free, right? <laughs> Everything's free, yes. Yeah. All okay. the information is free. And they can also just Google your name, Rachel Pilgrim, right? Yeah, Rachel, it's probably felt better with Rachel J. Pilgrim, but yeah, either or, and you can find everything that I've pretty much done at this point. <laughs> All right. Well, Rachel, um, I have so enjoyed having you on LE 2.0 Radio, and I just want to thank you for your time and your willingness to be on the show, but most of all, I want to applaud you, okay? I want, I want to let you know I am thankful for you. I'm thankful for your hard work and your persistence. And I am thankful that you are part of our future. Oh, thank you, Ellie. You're awesome, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, thanks so very much. All right, listeners. uh, We've been speaking with Rachel Pilgrim, uh, who is the founder and the writer of this wonderful thesis about five black women who founded a church in Mount Vernon, New York in 1888. Go check her out. Check out her website and the story. It is a wonderful story of America and of idealism. Okay, when we come back from our break, um, we'll pick up on my C-block and we'll talk about me, another woman who's an idealist, and things that Mm -hmm. I've tumbled to since the election. We'll be back in a second. Thanks.
we're back. LA 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. I hope you liked that interview with Rachel Pilgrim. Um, I'm still here. I've still got Jack in the studio. Jack is... I'm being I'm I am bribing him with treats to stay good and he just got another one and I'm down to my last treat though and I still have 6 minutes to go on this show so we'll see what happens. So, C block my work. A lot's happened <laughs> since I saw talk to you last. For example, last weekend I was in New Orleans uh receiving the Stonewall Award. Uh, from the American Bar Association's Commission on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, it was it was it was kind of a big deal, and there, there were two other awardees, um, uh, uh, and so I, I was not the only awardee, but I think we each get individually get this. I mean, it's a kind of a pretty impressive um, statue. So um, so I did that. And it's good to be recognized, okay? And not for me, not for the aggrandizement, but for the work. And and one of the people who got involved with nominating me, getting me the award, called me an unsung hero. And that really touched me because that's really what I am. I, I am behind the scenes. Nobody knows, okay? So pivoting, all right, this week – you know, I have – I've put out to the universe that I'm willing to talk to any – anybody who is transgender. I mean I'm willing to talk to any human regardless. But but anyone who's transgender, I'm willing to talk to them um, as a way to, you know, be there and be their support. And this week, two strangers. Um, one was an early 20-something uh, college student in between college and law school and the other was a 19-year-old college student. I'm not going to identify them any further than that, um, reached out to me and I had conversations with both um, around what it meant to be transgender, around the challenges uh, that we have um, generally just trying to figure out our course and our destiny as trans people but also um, – about the challenges going on in America right now. Now, you know I've talked about this a great deal. Maybe that has something to do with me getting the award last week in New Orleans. I don't know. But I will tell you this, okay? Um, the, particularly the college student, you know, in between college and law school that I talked with, I used the frame phrase doom. You know, the doom vacuum. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but they did use the word doom. Because it was about what's going on in America right now, as a, particularly as it relates to transgender people. I heard that this astounding, astounding statistic that 300 different bills had been introduced in the legislatures of various states across the country targeting LGBTQ plus people, mainly youth and mainly transgender youth. 300. Can you – that's the government – that's like that's like queer Jim Crow. Okay? And 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 not to not to, to get into false equivalencies about Jim Crow and the horrors of it, okay? Nobody's going around and lynching uh uh LGBTQ plus people, although um there are people getting beaten up and some people getting killed for who they are. So maybe it's it's not so much about uh, not having an equivalency, but at any rate 
you know, this young trans person, you know, was trying to decide about um, where to go for law school. And, you know, one state was a state where there is no LGBTQ plus protection. The other state is where there was, you know, and we talked about that. And we, you know, I, I talked about, you know, where do you want to plant your roots? Where do you want to, you know, after you get out of law school, where do you want to plant your roots? Do you want to do it in a state where you don't have rights and not likely to get them? Or do you want to do it in a state where you're already protected? I think that that helped this person to focus on the state with the law schools uh, that protects LGBTQ plus people. You know, maybe I did a little bit. Maybe there was a small part that I helped with this person. And certainly with the other person, I think I helped. We talked about some really basic core things about identity and living authentically. Listen, I am no one great. Okay, I'm not. All that I am, as you have heard me say before, is I'm a survivor of the human condition. It's just that my survivorship far more public because the voice doesn't match the appearance. But I'm, I am, I am an idealist. I am somebody who believes in the power of singular humans to make a positive difference in the world. And if me speaking to people one-on-one you know, and, and I got a busy life, okay, but I will always make time to do that because if that can make even a small difference for that person, well, my God, I'm going to do it. I am. And, you know, I don't know how much time I've got left on this earth, okay, and I certainly do not want to waste it um, by not speaking with humans who might benefit. So there you go. I am proud or happy to report to you that my boy Jack, for the most part, has not destroyed the radio station. Uh, um, he's barely even barely even chomped on the wires. So I'm like, all right, Jack, it's good that you're not electrocuted. So we're coming to the end of the show, everyone. Um, you got me, Ellie Krug, next week. I'll be back. I don't know whether it'll be live or not. We're trying. Uh, today I was supposed to have a guest and they came down with COVID. So that's what happened. Big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who is like doing triple duty this week um, because he's like holding down the fort while Brett Johnson is is off. To you, my listeners, in the time between now and when you hear my voice next, please go out and do something to make the world better. All right? And it may include telling a young person that you care about them and that they matter. All right. Take care. Be well. Bye.